You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Amen. You guys can be seated. Uh, welcome and good morning. My name is Josh Miller. I'm a college pastor here. I'm also an elder. Uh, primarily, I serve on the campus of Southeastern. Um, line up, line up. Um, we, we work on that, uh, that campus with Campus Outreach. It's a national organization, but it is uh, a ministry of the Field Church here. Uh, so my privilege to labor uh, on the college campus, building laborers for the lost world. Uh, today, though, it's, it's my privilege to get to proclaim God's word to you. Uh, it's my favorite thing in the world to study God's word, and so now I get to uh, proclaim it, and so I'm excited to do that this morning. We're going to be in Luke chapter 18, uh, so you guys can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there's one uh, on the seat in front of you in the little pocket there, so you can grab that. <laughs> But we're going to be in Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. And so as soon as you're there, there, we're going to just jump right into it and start reading. The Pharisee and the tax collector, verse 9. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, This man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What we're seeing here in this passage this morning, the main idea is that humble recognition of sin will lead to justification, whereas self-righteousness will lead to damnation. This is about the doctrine of salvation. How is a man saved? Who can be saved? We are building up right now our doctrine of salvation. What does the Bible teach about being saved? That's what this text is all about. The title this morning is Repentance That Comes From Humility Will Produce Salvation. Before we jump into our text, I want to define a few terms before we start uncovering the truth that is there for us. In America, in the, the, the Christian church in America, we have a rather loose view of salvation. Um, I think there's a few reasons for that. And I'll speak to some of them. The first one I want to talk about uh, that creates a loose view of salvation uh, is, is really just a, a 
improper view of God, a small view of God, a loose view of his righteousness, um, specifically. So I want to start by defining the term righteous or righteousness, because we're going to be dealing that, with that a lot in our text. So righteousness, and I've alliterated this so you can um, keep up and kind of store it away in your memory, and this can be helpful to you. These are the precepts of God. Now, throughout uh, the last few years, of, uh, as I've you know, taught guys how to study the Bible, done um, discipleship groups, done Bible studies, I get the question a lot, what is righteous? What does it mean to be righteous? What does the word righteousness mean? Um, and it's probably the hardest question I had in answering. I didn't have a great grasp of the term. It's one of those things you think you know what it means, and then you go to define it, and you have a, a struggle. So the Bible um, uses the word righteousness or righteous a few different ways. Righteous can be right behavior in line with a standard. And in the Bible, that's God's standard. So right behavior in line with God's standard. Righteousness or being made righteous can be equivalent to salvation or being justified. Those terms could be used interchangeably. Righteousness can also be just an attribute of God. It's a way that we describe him. Psalm 71, 19, your righteousness, O God, reaches the high heavens. So God is in line and he's right with his own standard. He is the standard, so of course he measures up to that standard. Another word for righteousness, you can do righteousness and justice. Psalm 103 uses it in this way. It's the idea of caring for the oppressed, the weak, the marginalized, the widow, the orphan. It's a verb. It's an action verb in this case. But for our purposes and the way Luke uses it, primarily in the gospel of Luke and the way I'll be using it, righteousness is a right standing before God. So I want to illustrate it by using uh, the Lady Justice statue. I'm sure you've all seen, uh, but she's holding out something and it's called the scales of justice. And it's basically two plates that are connected with chains. And they use this in the first century in the marketplace. Uh, if you were to go to a merchant and want something that they had and wanted to purchase that, they would have a standard of whatever that was worth. And they would put it on one side and then you would put your coins on the other side until they equal each other and then you would be deemed righteous and you would be able to get your good and go on about your business. So righteousness in regards to God is the same thing. On one side of the scale is his standard of living, his righteousness, his law, his precept. And on the other side, we would put our works, our actions, our deeds, our thoughts, even our secret thoughts, the Bible says, goes on the other side of the scale. And if they equal each other, then we are deemed righteous. Now, this is not a daily judgment, was I righteous today? This is an eternal, lasting judgment placed on your life. Have you been deemed righteous by your works? Now, um, to, to just cut to the chase, you, you can't. Nothing you can do can ever make you righteous with God. You'll never meet his standard. And I just ask, if, if you have an issue with that, would you really want it any other way? Would you want a God that you could impress? I mean, you know you. You know your thoughts, your ambitions, your greed, your lustful desires. Would you want that to please God, knowing that he knows you better than you even know yourself? 
Would you want a God that would accept you in that way? I don't think so. I wouldn't want to be in heaven with me for eternity in this state. So that's righteousness. That is what is required of us to get to heaven, right standing before God. So that's the precept of God. Now, what is salvation? Salvation is the path to God. Like I said before, we have a loose definition of salvation in America, in the American church, and that's typically attributed to a very low barrier of entry, right? You go to, um, you have an experience and you go to a conference and you're you know, wooed through emotions to make a decision for Christ and then you call yourself a Christian for the rest of your life. The hardest part of college ministry and sharing the gospel on the campus is getting students to realize that they are not actually Christians because everyone kind of gives Jesus the thumbs up and so they think they're in. If we lived in a hostile environment to Christians in America, I guarantee you most of those who proclaim to be Christians would no longer identify as that. And we may see that in our time, I don't know. So we have a low barrier of entry. Even though the Bible says narrow is the gate, few find it, we act as though in America we have defied those odds and found the secret sauce into getting uh, people saved. But that can't be the case. So first, two things I wanna explain to you about salvation if you don't already know. The first thing I think people may not understand fully is what we're saved to, right? So salvation, we are saved to a relationship with Christ. We get to spend eternity enjoying, worshiping, and communing with Jesus Christ, the, the preeminence of God, the, the righteous one. And that's a wonderful thing. That's our treasure that we say here at the field. And so Christ invites us into this, to this relationship and we are saved to that. That's wonderful. The second thing is what we're saved from. We are saved from a penalty of sin. And the penalty is the opposite, essentially, of what we're saved to. We're saved, uh, we're saved from this penalty, which would be an eternal separation from God. So if heaven means we get Christ forever, and I would ask you if you would get to go to heaven, but Christ wouldn't be there, would you still want to go? Because that is a way to, um, to tell if you're truly in Christ, right? If you truly love and cherish what Christ is about, which is himself and his glory. And so on the other side, we have eternal separation from God, which is what we, we, were, we are saved from. Salvation is the number one need of every single person in the world. Because, and this is, I want to define the term judgment, which is the penalty of our sins. Salvation is the number one need facing every single man, woman, and child on the planet because the judgment of God is the number one threat that faces every single human on the planet who has ever lived. COVID is, is not everyone's threat. One world government or whatever they're calling themselves now, um, the new world order, that's not a threat. Inflation, gas prices, the president, how the end times will happen, you know, how it works itself out. More of the threat is that the end times are going to happen and that Jesus will come back and judge the world. That is a threat. And if we understand that our sin, the sins that we commit on a daily basis, but also the sin that we're born into. I think Tanner, Tanner hit in Psalm 51, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. We are born into a sinful nature. That was Graham's golf ball. 
If we understand that our sin, those, those two sins that I've just defined using Psalm 51, if that brings about the judgment of God, then we must seek, look, desire a way to remove those sins so we don't, in, so we don't incur the judgment and the wrath of God. Everyone in here and everyone who has ever lived has to see God's judgment as a threat. It's imminent, right? 100% mortality rate equals 100%. You're going to see God on judgment day. So how will you take care of your sins? It's not going to be done through your own effort. It's not going to be done through attending church. It's not going to be done through extra giving, through service projects. It's not going to be done through what the world calls self-forgiveness and self-love, social justice efforts. Now, some of these things are good, some of them not. Um, however, none of them will make us right with God. None of them, none of them will appease uh, his standard and deem us righteous. Now, this has to concern us, right? This has to affect how we view the world. The next term I want to define is the gospel. So the gospel is the provision of pardon from our sins. Here's, here's what the gospel essentially is. If we understand all the terms up to now, the righteousness of God, Christ came to this earth, born of a virgin, and lived a perfect, righteous life. He met the standard of God's law. And so his life placed on the scale, he has equality with God. Although he is fully human, he's also fully God, and he has he's been deemed righteous through his life here on earth, facing the same temptations and trials that we all face. And then his death on the cross paid for our penalty of sin, eternal separation. And then his resurrection gave us eternal life. So he gifts his righteousness to you and you are able to put that on the scale on your behalf for righteousness and you, you are able to be deemed righteous before God. His death paid the penalty of your sin and then his, his resurrection from the grave allows us to be resurrected in the final day and be with our Lord forever. So that is the gospel. It's the provision of pardon from our sin. Now let's look at humility because we're going to see that in our text. Humility is the predecessor of salvation. It just simply means it comes before it, right? It is a necessary condition to receive salvation. Humility is. And what do we mean by humility? It's simply recognizing your sinful condition. That's the way the text uses it, and that's how we're going to use it today. God wants you to have a humble and contrite heart. He wants you, as, as the uh, Sermon on the Mount begins with the Beatitudes, he wants you poor in spirit. He wants you to mourn your sin. It says, God gives grace to the humble in James, and then James 4.10 says, humble yourselves and the Lord will exalt you. So we see that humility brings about grace from God. It brings exaltation from God. And if we use these verses to help us interpret our verses today, and, and that's what you should do, you should let Scripture interpret Scripture, then you're going to see that the grace and the exaltation you receive from the Lord is justification. It's salvation. Two more texts that just show this humility coming before salvation. Proverbs 15, 33 says the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom and humility comes before honor. Proverbs 18, 12, but before destruction, a man's heart is haughty or proud, but humility comes before honor. 
So these two verses echo our text conclusion that the exalted will be humbled, but the humble will be exalted. And we see what's necessary, truly necessary to proceed in salvation, it's humility. Now, lastly, I wanna look at what prevents salvation. And the reason our text gives us for what prevents salvation is self-righteousness. So basically, if all of this is true up until now, then why are people not being saved in droves? Why are people not coming under the reign and rule of Christ? I mean, they see that they don't live up to the standard of God, and yet they still will not humble themselves and be saved. Well, it's it's the simple reason of self-righteousness. They trust in themselves to be righteous. The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. I think we all would agree with that. And I think much of our culture would too. It may be one of the few things as a culture we get right. I mean, think about it. We don't expect, and I think the average Joe on the street, whether they're a Christian or not, wouldn't say, yeah, Christianity is about just everybody going to heaven. They wouldn't expect to be in heaven with a murderer, right? And so they, they rightly understand that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom. However, they, they err in making light what unrighteousness actually is to God. What did Jesus say about this? He said, be perfect as I am perfect. He said, unless your righteousness greatly surpasses that of the Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom. What does he mean by that? We, we pass over that and we act like, oh, that's in the past. That's not for us. He has a high standard. I mean, it's, it's perfect righteousness. It's, it's perfect righteousness is what he requires. The Jews didn't understand this. They were blind to it. They didn't see the impossibility what, that Jesus came to show that it was impossible to keep the standard, thereby you need a, a rebirth, you need a conversion, you need to be circumcised of your heart. The Old Testament hinted to this need for salvation. I'm gonna let Paul explain it in Romans 7 because he does a much better job. He says, yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. So the law was always meant to show us our sin, thereby show us our need for salvation, our need for dependence on God to produce uh, righteousness in us. Now, just in case you think it doesn't apply to you because you're not under the Jewish law, Romans 2.1, he starts off his epistle by saying, God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law, and all who have sinned under the law will also be judged, will be judged by the law. So whether Jew or Gentile, meaning anyone other than a Jew, you're a law unto yourself, and you're not keeping with that standard either. And so you too will be judged. And then he, he pretty much drives home the point in Romans 3, 10 through 12, where he says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. I mean, this is relatively in the beginning of his letter. If he's wanting people to read this letter, I wouldn't start off with that, right? But it's... It's true and it's necessary to, to begin with a right view of yourself before God. And that is it. We are unrighteous, worthless. We don't understand. We don't even seek for God. Now, our culture and the American Christian church has embedded this idea 
into people that you can be a pretty good person or you can be a good person, right? Like by what standard though, I would ask. I think most people in America understand who Jesus is to some extent. They understand that they cannot live up to his standard. That, you know, he's a good teacher. He's a good man. I could never um, be that. And they just pardon themselves from keeping that standard. And they, they say, I've done good in my life. I'm a pretty good person. But I ask him, by what standard? You're not a good person. That doesn't exist, actually. None of us are. So the problem is not understanding that unrighteous people don't go to hell, the judgment of God. It's understanding that we are the unrighteous, wicked people before salvation. Now, the reason we can't see this, I mean, many reasons, but the reason we are blind to it, at least the reason the text gives us, is self-righteousness. We trust in ourselves for righteousness. We trust that we will somehow meet that standard of God. So what I want us to see today in the text, if you are not in Christ especially, that self-righteousness is what is preventing you from salvation. So we're going to look at the text. Um, I've divided into two main points. So we're going to see 11 and 12 is going to be our first point, and 13 uh, will be our second point. So 9 and 10, we're not really going to be under a point there. We're just help, like it's going to help us build into the main point, the universal principle that's going to apply to our lives. So we're going to use 9 and 10 for that. And then 14 is just the conclusion. We're going to cap off. Um, so I'm just going to preview the points for you. Like I said, two points with a few subpoints. The first is, I mean, we have two responses to God in regards to your condition, the truth I've just laid out. The first is a response that leads to damnation. In verses 11 and 12, and then we're going to have a response that leads to justification, verse 13. And this is going to be pretty obvious to see, but we're going to observe some very helpful things along the way. So let's jump in. Verse 9 <clears throat> it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. So we can clearly see the point of the text. It's illuminating self-righteousness a.k.a. self-confidence, and it's showing it as a hindrance to salvation. Now, this is a shocking text to the current audience, just in their culture. If you can, if you can put yourself in their shoes, Jesus is comparing the two extremes of the Jewish, Jewish religious culture. And um, the ending is going to be shocking to them. And I'm not going to hold back the ending. We all know it. The tax collector is the one who gets salvation. But what we're going to observe is why that's so shocking to them. Now, this is a parable. Remember, parables are meant to reveal truths to believers, those who are actually seeking the truth. But they're also meant to conceal truths to outsiders, those who don't really want to know the truth. They contain knowledge of the kingdom. Just think about uh, Matthew chapter 13. We have a bunch of parables back to back to back, and it's said in the parables, these are meant to show you what the kingdom of God is like. Most of them start, the kingdom of God is like, fill in the blank. We have 35 parables in the gospels. This one is unique to the book of Luke, so we don't have this anywhere else. Um, typically, parables compare things, two, three, four, ten things. And it's in the difference of the comparison that we see the main point. I mean, just think uh, the, the two houses, right? We had one built on rock and we had one built on sand. The difference there is that the rock represents the word of God. If, you're, if your life is built on the word of God, 
you will not be destroyed. That's talking about judgment and salvation. We have the four soils, right? The, the soft soil, the cultivated soil is the one that produces a Christian. We have, last week we heard about the, the parable of the persistent widow um, and the evil judge there was compared to God and it was in that difference that we saw um, the main point. It's important in a parable not to ascribe um, a meaning to every single detail. That would be allegorizing it. And we've had um, in the past, I mean, Augustine is an amazing man to read and to learn about. Uh, he's a church father, but he was guilty of allegorizing a lot of parables and we miss the meaning when we do that. And so we've had to self-correct over the years as, as you know, big C church history. Uh, we've had to self-correct by not allegorizing parables. Parables are lifelike. They're not these fantasy adventures that don't make any sense. They're lifelike to the culture, to the people in that place and time. Um, they give us, like I said, a main point, a universal principle. We as Americans have to dig a little bit into the culture to understand what he's saying, right? We're 2,000 years removed. We have to understand what are the cultural facts. So I've done a lot of that this past week to help us see what is the truth. And I've just basically read really smart theologians and commentators. And so we stand on the shoulders of giants as we understand these truths that amazingly still apply to us 2,000 years later. Last thing about the parables, I don't realize how much I wrote about parables, but this parable is a transition, right? So, I mean, this is a book written by a man, Luke, inspired by the Holy Spirit. But as we get into verse nine, we're transitioning into the rest of our journey to Jerusalem. Luke from chapter nine to 19 is Jesus traveling the countryside with his disciples and followers and outsiders teaching them about the kingdom and preparing them for life when Jesus is crucified and ascended into heaven, resurrected and then ascended into heaven. So we're transitioning now into a series essentially on salvation. The next six topics we see, and if you have headings in your Bible, you'll see them too. They're all about salvation. And so I just think it's worth noting that Jesus is spending the last bit of time he has with his disciples hammering down this doctrine of salvation. What does it take to be saved? Who can be saved? How is a man saved? And so this is the first parable uh, that does that for us. So um, who's, in, who's in earshot? It says he, he also told this parable to some who trusted himself. So who's he talking to? Well, the last time in the text where it shows him addressing someone is 1722. It says, and he said to the disciples. And so he may still be engaged with the disciples, although we know there's someone within earshot that is unconverted and trusts in themselves for righteousness. That's exactly what the, what the text says, and that's what it means. He's unconverted. This isn't a Christian who's self-righteous. This is someone unconverted who is self-righteous. Um, I mean, it could have been Judas. I don't know, right? He was unconverted, so maybe he's the guy in earshot that needs to hear this. I'm not sure. Three verses that help us see like the essence of who Jesus is really talking to here. Uh, Luke 16, 15. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Proverbs 30, 12. There are those who are clean in their own eyes, but are not washed of their filth. And then Paul really sums it up the best in Romans 9, 31 and 32. 
But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. So Paul's looking back at this time uh, when Jesus walked the earth and basically showing uh, what it was that was going on in their hearts. They're pursuing a law based on works, not by faith. This has always been their fault in Israel and not seeing their sin. They trust in themselves and Jesus is attempting to take the blinders off that they would see. But it also helps us as Christians, as we're out in the world, understanding what is it that's preventing the gospel from getting through to this person that I've been sharing with for years. It's most likely self-righteousness. Let's continue. It says, and treated others with contempt. So it's no surprise, I think, that these two are connected. Self-righteousness leads to treating others with contempt or resenting people, basically hating fellow man, um, and that comes from, it flows out of a self-righteous heart. And it makes sense because the root of self-righteousness is pride. I mean, you think you can be right with God based on your own works. Knowing what you know about yourself, you still think you're equal to God. That makes no sense. You either have a very low view of God or a very high, diluted view of yourself. So how do, you, how do you maintain that diluted view of yourself? You just look down on everyone else around you and you resent them, you hold them in contempt and that props up this fantasy that you've created for yourself that you're equal to God. So it's no surprise that Satan would use this doctrine, if you want to call it, of self-righteousness and, and contempt, of pride, really, to perpetuate the world and prevent people from salvation. I mean, it's, it's how he fell from heaven. It's the lie that he used to deceive Adam and Eve in the garden, and it's been the lie ever since that we can be made right with God. And what does that create? It creates in us war with men. And we, we hate our fellow man because of this lie that's, that's started. And it's, it stripped us of the ability, not that we ever had the ability to keep the commandments, but the, the two greatest commandments. How can we love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind if we truly think we're equal to him? How can we love our neighbor as ourselves if we hold them in contempt because they're the ones propping up our, our fantasy? Now, like I said, we never had the ability to keep those commandments, but I think Satan thinks we're trying to. And he thinks that's necessary for salvation as well. And so he has effectively caused us to err in this uh, for millennia. Think back to Luke 15 when we learned about the parable of the prodigal son. The older brother was essentially self-righteous, right? Like he resented the younger brother for the grace and mercy that he received from the father. And he did this out of self-love, out of pride. Basically, everything he did in his life was about his own right standing, his, about his own um, righteousness. And so when someone else undermined that by the grace and mercy he received, he resented him. So here's the point. Since contempt towards others is shown to be a, a root, or I'm sorry, a fruit of self-righteousness, right? It's downstream of it. Um, then if you can relate to this, if you really feel in your heart that you are very resentful of people, and maybe you're here at church because you want to fix the resent you have towards people, I would really just ask you to start with, are you converted? Are you a Christian? Or are you still trusting in your own self-righteousness? Because that could be a very clear indication that you are not in Christ. It may seem counterintuitive too. The answer is not to just love people. 
You can't love people because you're not converted. You're not in Christ. So the answer becomes be converted, be saved. Verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. So we see here the subjects being compared, the actors, if you will. From them, the difference will, you know, the difference in them will arrive at the main point. Now they go up into the temple. Why is that significant? Well, just, you know, a little bit of cultural context. Jerusalem is up on a hill and so is the temple. And so they go up into the temple, literally up into the temple to pray. They believe that their prayers were heard by God uh, and accepted by God better in the temple. So that's why they did that. We have a Pharisee and a tax collector. And if you want a parallel to them, it's, it's difficult. I think it would be different for every person. Um, you could say it's an unconverted pastor or priest, someone that is essentially uh, is a exemplary in the way of uh, righteousness and you know, zeal for God and purity, morality. But it, he has to be unconverted, right? Because at the end, the Pharisee does not go home justified. So it's someone in your life that you would be shocked to find out doesn't make it into heaven. On the flip side, the tax collector would be on the other end. Who in your world is least likely to ever give their life to Christ? That is the person at the end of the parable. You will be shocked to find out he goes home justified because he has been humbled by God. So our first point as we jump into verse 11 is a response that leads to damnation. Verse 11 and 12, we're going to get a, a glimpse at the Pharisee's heart and his works. It starts off by saying, the Pharisee standing by himself prayed thus. Now, this is either referring to like where he stood in the temple in comparison to the tax collector, because notice, notice if you look down at 13, he stood far off. Um, or it also said he, he prayed thus as if he was praying externally. Um, either one of these could capture the essence of the Pharisee. He was doing it for appearance, that other people would see him. Uh, and he offers this self-righteous prayer to God. And it's, you know, when we, when we see the way the tax collector does it, we're going to see uh, how that stands out. So the first thing we see in his prayer, though, is um, contempt towards others. He says, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Now, on the surface, this is right for him to do. In this context, and even in ours, it's right for you to pray to God and thank him for your station in life, for what you have received. Now, what's wrong for you to do is assume that it's based on something that you've done, right? Everything we have, every good and perfect gift comes from above. So God has placed us where we're at, and so it is right for us to thank him. And this was actually a very common prayer. It's written in, I saw in some commentaries, in the Talmud, which is a book that the, the Jews would all uh, follow. This prayer was actually written out, just like the Lord's Prayer we see today in Luke 11. This prayer is one that they would follow. This is one reason why we know in Luke 11, the disciples said, Jesus, can you teach us how to pray? Because Jesus prayed so much differently than they were used to. So right off the bat, we're hearing this prayer or at least the, the people listening to the parable are hearing this prayer and saying, okay, like, yeah, Pharisee, he would pray this way. Like, good, good guy, right? He's, um, he's righteous. He's humble. They, they think he's humble based on this prayer. Um, and Jesus is doing this to set us up for the shock at the end. 
right? But we can say now the Pharisee's prayer is not heard by God because there's no repentance. There's no confession. Yeah, he may have some things going right in his life, but there's got to be something that he's aware of, uh, some secret thoughts, as we heard, some, some acts or deeds that he needs to confess to God and plea for his mercy. So it's the doctrine of sin and man that this Pharisee is deficient on. He doesn't understand man rightly. He doesn't understand sin rightly. And that's causing him to, to be self-righteous here. Two verses that he would be well familiar with, Ecclesiastes twelve fourteen, It says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Job fifteen fourteen says, what is man that he can be pure? Or who is born of a woman that he can be righteous? So this really speaks to the foolishness of the Pharisee and the hardness of his heart that he would know these verses and still overlook them and continue in his arrogance claiming righteousness before God. One last verse that obviously the Pharisee didn't know because this is, well, because he was imaginary in a parable, but also because it's written in Ephesians, which is after Christ resurrected. This is our identity before conversion. This is who we are. It says, dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, that's Satan and all his followers, among who we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now, this is not describing the life of someone who just went crazy in his 20s and came back to morality. This is describing the life of every single man, woman, and child before they are converted, dead in their trespasses in which they once walked. So having the wrong view of man and of sin is detrimental towards us being saved. If you build a category in your head, in your brain, that someone can be a pretty good person based on their works, what they do, you just created that out of a figment of your imagination. Now, it's a product of the culture we live in, but it's not true. It's humanism that says a man can be justified by the way he lives and what he does in his works. The second element of the man's prayer is that he trusted in his self for righteousness. This is verse 12. It says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. Now, these are typical religious duties of this type of Jew, right? He's a Pharisee, so that's like a sect of Jew. However, it was much more than the law required. Typically, um, as, at least as what is prescribed in the Bible is Jews would fast once a year on the Day of Atonement. And they would tithe only on the produce that they received. They would tithe, you know, a tenth of what that is. So this man did a lot more than that, right? He fasted twice a week, and he tithed up to maybe 20, 25% based on, you know, what all he's counting in as tithes of all that he gets. This was typical for the Pharisees. Uh, however, like I said, it's much more than the law requires. So two observations. One, what a waste. I mean, the fact that he would forego eating twice a week, that's like 104 times, and give up a quarter of his income and not even be in the family of God, what a waste. I hate to say this, but if you're going to reject God's offer of salvation, like why not continue to just eat, drink, be merry, right? Because it means nothing to God. The second observation is just the power that self-righteousness has 
in creating discipline, in, cre- in creating um, morality. And so it may be frustrating at times as a Christian when it's so hard to set yourself apart as righteous or holy in the world that people would know that you're a Christian because of the way you love one another. It may be frustrating because so many people in the world who are not in Christ seem like they're doing such a good job. Um, But that's the power of self-righteousness. And so just fight the good fight, continue, fight your sin and be be made holy in Christ and you will see a reward from that. So back to our, our guy here. He is fasting and um, tithing, and he's not even going to inherit eternal life. And so will you if you maintain your arrogance against God and don't call out for his mercy and ask for him to save you. Your works mean nothing to God in the way of salvation. And I ask one more time, would you want it any other way? Would you want a God that you could impress uh, that would just kind of let you into heaven based off of you know, your standard maybe? I mean, how could you imagine spending eternity worshiping that God? You can't trust him to keep his word. You can't trust him to keep you as a Christian. You can't trust him one day to just decide to kick you out of heaven because he has no standard, right? And we're talking eternity here. Like a lot could go wrong in an eternity. This is the way Paul thought of it. In Philippians 3, he said, though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. Now, the flesh is what he's using to describe him producing works apart from God. It says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, which is essentially what this parable is about, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. So Paul counted all of the works that he produced, and I know a lot of that's over our heads. That's okay, because really the point that he's saying is if anyone could be righteous before God, it could have been me. My works were higher than anyone else that I know of. But he counted it all as trash, all as worthless, all as rubbish, And he has one possession that he traded for all of that. It's the righteousness of Christ gifted to him. And what did that produce in him? The same thing it produces in all of us, salvation. And it's from this salvation that fueled and led to the rest of his incredible life and ministry. So it's a powerful thing to have the righteousness of Christ and to trade in our works for Christ's. The second point we're going to see a response that leads to justification. So, so far, if you're tracking with me, you may say, okay, like I'm interested. Maybe I need to look at my salvation. Maybe I need to look at, am I right with God? Maybe you want to be saved. Well, this is the template for it. So just follow along, please. Verse 13, but the tax collector standing far off would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. So it starts off with the word but, which is drawing in a comparison. It's leaning in favor of the second subject, the tax collector. Remember, he was hated and despised. So just a quick word on tax collectors back then. They were Jewish born, and then they would um, basically grow up and decide they're going to work for Caesar, right? Remember, uh, Jerusalem was um, occupied by Roman rule, which is why they thought Christ was coming to free them from that oppression. 
but the tax collector would work for Caesar to go and collect taxes from his uh, fellow kinsmen. And so he was pretty hated because along with that, you kind of get some uh, liberty to collect a little more uh, from people. And so he's basically an extortioner as well. That's the way they were perceived. So not very popular uh, in this time frame. What did he do? He did not lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast. So we see here a proper posture of penitence. Essentially, we just see a broken man, right? One truly humbled in search of restoration, reconciliation, salvation. Three texts in the Old Testament that show this same posture. Ezra 9, 6 says, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads, and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Isaiah 6, 5, most of you should know, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. And then Job 42, 6, Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is the last chapter of Job where he finally confesses after God goes off on him for about three chapters about how, who are you to talk back to God? So every great man of God and, and actually every man of God, great is irrelevant. Every man of God has prayed this prayer before God have mercy on me, a sinner. And the truly spiritually matures have this prayer pretty often. So as we look now at his prayer, there's five points that are going to demonstrate to us the tax collector's humility. I'm going to call them the five marks of humility that lead towards salvation. Number one is appear before God humble and broken. We see this in his posture. He stood far off, wouldn't lift up his eyes, beat his breast. He's not looking at anything. He's not looking at man. I bet the, the Pharisee was kind of observing people around him, you know, seeing if he's being seen. This tax collector is broken. He's not even looking at anyone. So the lesson here is to show up. Don't hide in your shame and your guilt. You may have a low view of yourself, and I would say it's okay. It's half the battle. This is where I'm going to paraphrase Pastor Chad here. And I sent him this just to make sure it was accurate. I told him if he had written a book or something, like I could have quoted straight from it. I don't know what that guy's doing with his life. Uh, Pastor Chad is our biblical counselor here, and he's a very busy man. So, uh, Essentially, I was, I was talking about having a low view of yourself. Being depressed and having a low view of yourself, you're half right. In and of yourself, you are hopeless. The pain you feel, the shame you feel, it's true. Where you go wrong, though, is underneath that, you have... Uh, an idea of yourself that's inflated, right? And you're sad, not before God because of your sin. You're sad because you're not living up to that view of yourself. So deep down, depression is actually pride. Now there's hope though. The hope is that Christ died for your sins. You can live with him forever. His righteousness has been gifted to you. And then he is creating in you a perfect image of himself that will live with him forever and go on glorifying and exalting the greatest being in the universe forever. So that's the hope that you have. That's why you don't have to be, that's why you don't have to live in your shame. That's why you can cry out to God. Number two is assume God's judgment. He says, God, be merciful to me. When he says this, he's assuming a coming judgment. God, I know this doesn't end well for me. That's why I need mercy, right? This is going to be bad. It's written all over my conscience. It's written all over the nature. 
It's written all, it's written in your word explicitly. You are a righteous God. There is none like you, and I don't stand a chance on judgment day. I'm going to need some mercy from you, God. So God will judge you, or he will save you. Well, he will judge everyone, but he, you will either experience his wrath, or you will experience salvation based on your response to him. And I just ask you again, be saved today, if that is you. Number three is anticipate reconciliation. Our sin separates us from God for eternity, but he has made a way for us, and it's through Jesus Christ. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, what's so remarkable about this prayer, I mean, Jesus is telling the parable, so I guess it's not that remarkable that Jesus would, would say it in this way, but the term be merciful, the Greek word here is propitious or propitiation. It's only used one other time in Hebrews, um, and it's explaining the idea of being of Christ being the propitiation for our sins, essentially pardon. So what he's really praying out is, Lord, be propitious to me, or Lord, pardon me. He doesn't call out for God to accept his works, his deeds, his acts. He doesn't say, Lord, I'm going to need a payment plan from you. If you just give me a little more time, I can figure this out. He doesn't ask for a softer sentence. He just assumes God's judgment, anticipates reconciliation, and asks for forgiveness. He is essentially declaring bankruptcy. Now, how is it possible that a just God, one who is perfectly just, can forgive sins? Because he is also perfectly righteous. So how can that just God forgive sins and let sinners into heaven? Even if they do ask for forgiveness, how is it possible that this happens? Well, it's because Christ was sent to be the propitiation of our sins. We can be pardoned because Christ's life, like I've said earlier, has achieved the perfect righteousness. It has been credited to our account, and then our sins have been credited to Christ and paid for on the cross. So theologically, that's how it's possible that it happens. Now, but another observation, how does the tax collector know that this is possible? I mean, until now, I mean, he's been, Jesus has been preaching forgiveness of sins, so maybe he just heard it in one of Jesus' previous sermons. Um, but how is it that a tax collector can arrive at this, by God's grace, I guess, that the, at this understanding that he needs to be completely forgiven of his sins and that that's even possible for him? Well, I think it's because he's heard it. As a tax collector on the streets of Jerusalem, families who he's collected from countless times crying out, have mercy, I have nothing left. I am bankrupt. Pardon my debt to Caesar. And so he cries out with the only thing he knows, bankruptcy. God is the only one that can do this for you. He is the only one that can gift you the pardon that you require with a cost only to himself. And he paid the cost in full on the cross. So that's how he can maintain perfect justice and righteousness because he's the one who paid the penalty. Number four is acknowledge the gift. Notice too, the tax collector, he didn't come to God and promise that he would change his life. He didn't say, I'm gonna stop stealing from people. I'm gonna pay people back. I'm gonna stop sinning. He had nothing to offer God. Right? He called on the only thing he could, God's mercy, which is completely a grace of God. It's a gift that no man may boast, Ephesians teaches us. 
And so acknowledge the gift was necessary. Now, I do assume that someone justified in this way, it will necessarily lead to a life change. It has to. But there's nothing you can do to earn it up front. More on that in a minute. The fifth step is to agree with God about your sin and repent. And I said step. It's not actually a step. This is just the fifth observation of this man's prayer. Ultimately, humility will lead you down this road that the tax collector was on and you will repent. I am a sinner. Lord, I need you. Forgive me. Take my life and change me. Now, what is repentance? I like the idea. Um, There is no word in the Hebrew for repentance. And so the way they explained it, it's as if someone is walking down a road and they just do 180 degrees after they have a change of mind and go back the other way. So repentance is the idea of we acknowledge that we are walking away from God. And when he opens our eyes, we turn towards Christ and we walk towards him. That's what repentance is. The Greek had a a similar meaning, basically change in one's thinking. So same idea here. It's not included in the idea of, in the, the technical word repentance is not a life change, but it leads to a life change. So if you have been in Christ for any amount of time and you haven't experienced or observed a life change, I would just ask you to question, have you said this prayer? Not that the prayers would save you. Have you humbled yourself before God and cried out for his mercy? Have you acknowledged your sinful condition before a holy God and said, Lord, save me. I have no other option. Now, I completely agree with once saved, always saved, eternal security. I'm not saying you must be saved again, but the truth is many will say on judgment day, Lord, Lord, didn't I do all these things in your name? And he'll say, no, depart from me. I never knew you. And so that's true. We need to really question if we haven't seen a life changed, our salvation. Pastor Sam said the analogy years ago, and I always forgot it because he used me in the analogy, so I'm going to just return the favor. If you get hit by a Mack truck, 18-wheeler, you don't walk, like you don't walk into the room five minutes later and nobody knew you got hit, right? Like they're going to know decisively that something crazy happened to you. And I said, I think the, this may be the only force capable of messing up Sam's hair. He didn't like that joke. He said, I always make fun of people's hair. So I'm not going to say that this time. Seriously, you don't meet God and leave unchanged. You are, after all, a new creation. You have a new DNA, right? You don't completely change your thinking and then continue to do the same old habits. Now, the the change can be imperceptible at times. It can be gradual. It can be slow. Um, But I hold on to to Matthew 12 there where it says, uh, he will not um, bruise a broken reed. He will not uh, snuff out a, a wick. Basically, if, if he has begun the work of salvation in you, he will bring you to completion. Last thing to do if you're not in Christ would be to accept salvation. Right? And you, if you have done that this morning or in the recent past and you've never told anyone, you must. Like tell me, tell a pastor here, tell a, a trusted friend that you can uh, begin the process of discipleship, begin learning and seeing God's word rightly and responding to it in truth because you now have that ability through the gospel. Praise God. And what I would say in in the way of application to those who are in Christ today is who in your world needs to hear this truth? Who have you heard in the past year or so say the words, I'm a pretty good person? 
And who needs to hear this message? Send it to them. And, and a short little text. Hey, man, I heard you say, you know, good person the other day. I'd love for you to listen to this. And then if you'd be open to talking about it, maybe we could grab coffee. And you walk them through this. And if you don't feel up to that, then grab me. I'd love to basically sit there with you and, and help you navigate this conversation. Because it can be intimidating at first, but it's necessary if we have people in our world that don't understand this. So let's just conclude with verse 14. It says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. Now, this is where Christ shocked the crowd, right? He just justified the most hated and despised, despised man and ignored the man who was acting out piety, zeal for God, although without knowledge. No one was more religious than this Pharisee, and so they just they couldn't believe it. But it proves the point that those who trust in themselves will not inherit the kingdom. They will not be saved. Being justified here equals salvation, as I hope you can see now. He was declared righteous, the tax collector. Sins forgiven, pardoned, zero merit or basis of his own works, and now he's a member of the kingdom of God. And these are the people that you will be joined by from your left to your right, as far as the eye can see. The, the uniting factor is that we've all at some point called out for God's mercy. Now, the very last sentence says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. I struggled understanding this. I mean, obviously you can tell what it means. I mean, it just seems, it seems redundant. Like, why is God saying this again in a different way? This was a common proverb used in this time. All the Jews knew it. They recited it daily. And so why then throw it in here? Well, I think, it, I think what Luke is doing is showing that they had misunderstood this proverb, right? I think the Pharisee believed that he was the humbled one. He was the one being or practicing humility through his prayer. And the exaltation that he received was his right standing or his standing rather in society, right? Because he was a Pharisee. So that's what he thought it meant. But what Luke is showing here is that what it actually shows is that the tax collector is the one being humbled. And his exaltation is that he will inherit eternal life. So I just love that Luke ended this section with that quick little proverb, just showing once again the arrogance and the pride of the tax collector and how that blinds them to the truth. So in closing, church, the Bible teaches maybe more than anything else, the impossibility of living up to the standard of God. It shows us, maybe more than any other thing, our unrighteousness before him, how far we are and how far we've missed the mark. So all we can say at some point in your life, you must say, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And trust me, he will. Let's pray. Father, have mercy on us, God. I pray that you would open the minds and the hearts and the eyes of the unbeliever today and that they would be humbled and repent, Lord. Use your word uh, to do what it does so effectively and save. God, I pray for every Christian in here that they would uh, use these truths to go out and to proclaim uh, your gospel message, which is salvation uh, to the eternal Christ, who is our greatest treasure. And I pray that you would um, just, just make the, the ripples of this talk go out far and wide and that you, you would produce change uh, in the hearts of men and women in here and that that would impact uh, their communities, God. Uh, impact our country, 
um, for your glory, God. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.